What is transgression is not sex. No, no, listen to me. I know probably say it. Falling in love is a problem. I don't have to be helpful. Wait, why do I have to be helpful? Look at our priceless art collection and I think, what a great country. I'm good for it. Good evening, listeners, and welcome to this week's episode of Humidum post Game of Thrones. So we'll be discussing the first episode of season six of Game of Thrones with Jenny Sonta for the Spew Review. Vanaxis canvases the politics of Game of Thrones and how we can resist Rupert Murdoch's empire by downloading it. Uh, Georgina McNeil takes us through Magritte's This Is Not a Pipe in What the Fuck Am I Looking At? And Miriam Taylor rounds out the show discussing a whole range of juvenile shit, as is her wont. Stay tuned. And mixed with alcohol, we turn into raging brutes, distorting reality. Miriam, in the news today, uh, this is from news.com.au, female nurse aged 27 caught using her iPhone to take secret pictures of unconscious patient's penis. Uh, this is a New York nurse. She snapped the photos of the unconscious male's penis and sent them to her co-workers. She surrendered her medical license. What's your thoughts on this matter? Look, being a nurse, we've all done, you know, things that I guess we're not proud of. But, I mean, look, to take a picture of an unconscious flaccid penis to send to your co-workers thinking that nobody's going to know about it, I mean, that's 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 silly. I mean, she's a silly. Was the she's patient silly. a celebrity, or was you know this particularly impressive penis? Well, I mean, no, what was the I mean, if someone's unconscious, they're usually not dressed. They're usually just got you know the gown on that can easily be flipped up. So, mm. I mean, the whole process would have been done quite quickly. I mean, she would have been in there, click out. But who? What co-workers is she sending to? Is she sending it to doctors? Is she sending it to other nurses? I think she was sending it to her colleagues and friends. Interesting uh, observation here. As part of a plea deal to end the felony charges, the blonde nurse who used to work at an Upstate University Hospital in Syracuse also agreed to spend three years on probation. Wait a minute. Why is it relevant that she's blonde? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, do blonde people commit more crimes? Probably. <laughs> I mean, what's what nature? What what impact does the color of her hair have on whether or not she's being brought up on felony charges? Look, I don't know. There might have been a study or something. We need to look that up about you know female blonde nurses taking pictures of flaccid dicks. And I tell you what, if there hasn't been a study, there needs to be one. There needs to be one. I mean, I could have committed lots of crimes as being a blonde nurse. Yeah. Who knows? Felony charge, Miriam Taylor. Yeah. <laughs> We're connected now via complicated satellite things to our Gosford studio where Jenny Sonta joins us for the Spew Review. Jenny, welcome. Oh, thank you, Pat. Lovely to be here again in my lounge in my undies. <laughs> to Game of Thrones this week. Um, Indeed. The new season's starting. Very exciting. Mm, what did you think of the premiere episode? Look, I mean, the first episode is always kind of a perfunctory setting the scene episode. Mm. So I enjoyed the episode, but it wasn't like super exciting or like, oh my God, cling to the side of your seat. It was just setting up all the stuff that's coming. And I guess the major twist was at the end, which was obviously wonderful. And I mean, I should probably point out at the start. Spoilers! Yeah, (laughs) spoiler alert for anybody listening. You might want to skip over the next four minutes or five minutes of the podcast so you avoid uh, what is to come. Yeah, like everything uh, we ever review, if you haven't watched it, we don't care. 
Yeah, basically. We're going to trample all over your enjoyment of the show. Spoiler exactly. number one, obviously, Jon Snow is still dead. But I got annoyed at the internet for getting frustrated about that because I thought, what did you expect? He's obviously not coming back in episode one. Yeah, exactly. They're going to draw it out if he does ever <laughs> return in any form. Hmm. I, um, Do you have any theories about this? Uh, look, <clears throat> I think it's pretty you likely Game that... Game of Thrones theories? I do like Game of Thrones theories. I'm not familiar with where they're at with Jon Snow, though. Is there something I'm not aware of? Well, uh, (laughs) yeah. I mean, I've spoken to Travis about this for a while, and recently the internet's gotten hold of... Obviously, everyone believes that Jon Snow is a product of... um, Lyanna Stark and Rhaegar Targaryen. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hmm. Um, so therefore he's half Targaryen and half Stark. And so obviously, um, the Night's Watch is going to burn Jon Snow's body at some stage to stop him coming back as a White Walker, right? Ah. And so the theory is that because Jon is half Targaryen, uh, he will be cleansed and come out of the flames in some kind of form. Like Daenerys did at the end of the first season or the end of the first book, uh, maybe minus the dragon nipple sucking, hopefully. But that, you never know. That is a pretty good cool theory. theory. It's an interesting theory, and I kind of hope it's right in some small way. Mm. Like Jon Snow is definitely dead, but I, you know, you think it could be Melisandre that has something to do with it, but I think it's going to be to do with the flames, but you never know. One of the uh, interesting observations made at the Telegraph in the UK was they said it feels okay to leave the books behind, which I kind of agree with. Yes, yes. And I was really worried uh, during the last season, was the show going to ruin the books for me? Because I'm a big book fan, obviously. Mm. But I feel like they're so divergent now that I can successfully see them as two different entities and one won't spoil the other. Well, I mean, the classic uh, example of that is the resolution of Tristane's plot. Yeah, line. it was a shit week for Dawn, wasn't it? <laughs> I mean, like, fucking, don't worry about those plot lines; they're all gone. Well, he's, he was kind of a lame. He was a lame character in the books, and kind of yeah. pointless. And and his whole story arc went nowhere, save for being burnt. Yeah, I mean, it was good to see that the uh, dragons finally got a princely meal. I found his storyline potentially interesting, but he was a dead ship boring character. Yeah. But it kind of points everything more towards Daenerys in where the books all tend to lead, whereas in the show it's kind of a bit more bifocal. But, yeah, I mean, uh, Prince Doran's dead, like, uh, and it's just total pussy power down south, so that's interesting. Did you enjoy the first episode? I did enjoy the first episode. I was glad to see, I'm glad to see Sansa Stark not just being beaten from shit to hell all the time. Um, Yeah. So now finally she's protected by... Uh, someone who's actually going to protect her. Yeah, I love that. That's great. And uh, Brienne is one of my favourite characters from the book and the show. She's wonderfully portrayed by Gwendolyn Christie, and it's good, even though she's not meant to be up there, it's good to see that she's getting some shit done while she is. Yeah, absolutely. But probably the, the biggest thing that we need to talk about is obviously Melisandre, my favourite character on the show. And yeah. As it transpires, a disgusting old hag. Yeah, well, we all need to get us some of those enchanted necklaces. <laughs> Fuck. If only we'd known, maybe I'd have a boyfriend. Because <laughs> <laughs> it got to the end of the episode and obviously she's taking her clothes off and you think, well, par for the course for Melisandre. And then it just took me a while to 
understand what was happening. And I went, wait a minute. Yeah, well, if, she, if she'd cleaned that mirror, it would have been a lot <laughs> more a visible lot earlier on. But she was so ugly. Like, she's not just 100 years old. She's, like, two, 300 plus. Like, that's some Witches of Macbeth shit right there. Oh, no, tell me about it. I was waiting it to foretell a prophecy. But, yeah, that was that was great because you get one Melisandre chapter in book five. And fuck, you want more after it because, and that's kind of what I felt with that episode. You got a glimpse into her character. Yeah, it was wonderful. I, but there's a, there's an issue with continuity with the necklace because she doesn't wear the necklace when she's in the bath in front of Queen Celise, and she still looks young and beautiful. But there's a few theories around that as well. But it's interesting what they're doing with her character because she obviously can portray herself in very many different forms to people at different times. So that opens that door, which I think is interesting. Mm, Absolutely. Uh, What do you give Uh, the episode out of eight garlic wraps, I guess? Well, I'm going to give it probably five and a half zesty garlic wraps Mm. as just as it's, it's, it's building tension, but it wasn't super exciting. And I mean, I did have to look at old lady boobs, which she's, Boys One less on. garlic wrap. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Pat. See you, bye. <laughs> we are connected now via Skype with Vanaxis, and this is coming three days after the release of the latest episode of Game of Thrones. Vanaxis, Jenny's done a spew review. What do you think? Well, look, I, you know, I, if I can use quite a colloquial expression, I, I, I feel I still have blue balls. Obviously, after the massive cliffhanger that we have at the end of Game of Thrones thing, and you go, ah, you know, and we all, we all wanted some sort of resolution. And, I mean, don't get me wrong, the episode was good. I devoured it. But uh, I'm, I'm waiting sort of for too long. And just like you don't mind waiting between courses at a good restaurant, when it goes into three hours, you can get a little bit cross. Now, obviously, it doesn't matter what. I will, I will continue to watch it because, you know, I'm a junkie and it's heroin. But, uh... I wanted to. I wanted. I wanted more information. And and where was Samwell? You know, where's Bran? Like, so I know it was a recap, but I didn't get a recap of all the characters that I I wanted to. And the trailer led me to think that Bran was all going to be like, yeah, 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 I've got me bird magic. I've seen no bird magic yet. Well, I mean, it is only episode one. Well, I don't care. I am a westerner. I wanted. All 12 or 11 episodes or whatever it is in one go. (laughs) Now, this probably raises the issue. Um, House of Cards, other very excellent TV show, gets released in a block and you can access it for essentially $12 a month with Netflix. Game of Thrones, on the other hand, in Australia is quite inaccessible and I've just um, been reading through the article why I refuse to feel guilty for torrenting Game of Thrones. What's your thoughts? I don't feel any guilt at all. I wish that it was on a streaming service like Game of Thrones where I, where I could access it all at once. Um, mm. It's definitely the way it's going. Um, in Australia, more than anywhere else, you see an unwillingness to shift with the times. And more than anywhere else, you see not just... I mean, first, the Murdoch Empire destroyed, you know, Optus, Optus Cable. Mm. You know, and then they went after the internet and the liberals produced them the turd NBN, which is so horrific. Netflix is like, if you do not improve your speeds, we will have to leave. Mm. Which, you know, I can just imagine Stan and the terrible Presto and by Fox are sitting in the corner, like, licking their chops mm. like a filthy dog. Um, And 
you know, and it's also a lot of people are very cranky that Netflix has brought in a v- like stricter thing, so it's much harder to get around it with a VPN. You need to use a tunneling program. Again, that was because of the influence that that the Murdoch Empire has in Australia. They said, no, we've bought the rights to these particular shows. Hmm. It's not fair that people are able to watch it. At, you know, we've got things like choice and whatever, consumer advocacy groups. So you need to tell Netflix to fix it or, you know, and the government's like, don't worry, we'll do that. I will never give a dollar to that enterprise if I can. And cable in Australia is has more ads per hour than commercial television. Hmm. Like, it's, it's just awful. Traditional media formats hate internet streaming services. I mean, they hate the internet in general. And in a very Australian business way, rather than change with the times, they are just flailing against it. Hmm. Nothing sums it up more than the big brouhaha over Waleed Ali and Lilin Chin doing quite well in the, you know, the people's choice for the gold liking. Hmm. And they're like, oh, they're popular because people are able to stream some of their clips on the internet. Mm. Yes, this is the world we live in now. And you can just see that they're so angry that it's not a television news presenter at a morning chat show. And that's probably because people don't really find that sort of crap entertaining. And people would either watch something that's genuinely funny or is genuine news. Well, interestingly, um, the Daily Telegraph brought out that stupid article at the time that Waleed Ali got the nomination or whatever and it got, you know, announced about the Gold Logie thing. And that article was trying to argue that he's, I don't know, it was saying that he shouldn't win the Gold Logie for a range of reasons, one that he's not good enough or something like that, that Lee Sales should have been nominated as well. Um, there's a really good article summing it up for The Guardian, which saying, um, argument one, he's better than everyone else. Argument two, there is more worthy in his field. Argument three, Ali's biased against ISIS. Argument four, diversity needs to be the new norm, therefore he shouldn't win for some reason. Argument five, he needs to be popular to win. And argument six, he's not on social media. That was basically her argument against um, Waleed Ali winning. And then they, they make the point further in this article that this website is bookended by pieces headlined, quote, every orgasm I have is a show of defiance to my rapist. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I entered a chili eating contest. It was not pretty. I mean, uh, look, all s- harsh indictments on journalism and the media in Australia. <laughs> there comes a point when a flagship media like The Guardian needs to go, hang on, we're a newspaper. This is a badly edited blog. <laughs> this would be more at home, perhaps, on Mamma Mia. No. Or- Do you know who published it? The Daily Telegraph. Uh, well, look, I'm, I'm just giving up on life. <laughs> uh, speaking of things, the Daily Telegraph. Well, who's reading that on the Daily Telegraph website? Speaking who, of- who is reading that? I'll tell you who's reading that. That's Mark Latham reads that, and that's why he gets so angry. <laughs> speaking of Mark Latham, let me give you the headline from his latest article. Oh. Neo-Marxist feminists send a neutered Trojan horse into schools to re-engineer our children's sexuality and social values. That's the headline. Uh, I mean, look, the thing is, is that this, the conversation, the, I feel that the conversation for nearly everything has two extremes. Just on M- Mark's little thing, there's currently a video that's been quite popular for bad reasons on YouTube of a, a, a trans person who says that anyone who is cisgender is transphobic and probably racist and sexist as well. 
And it's full of mass generalizations and heaps of intersectionalism and just words, you know, just, it is just, it is just words of identity politics and, and nonsense. Mm. And I mean, and I mean, it's also a lot of it is demonstrably wrong, you know, uh, you know, to make a claim that someone who is trans, who has very supportive parents, and there are people that are really not lucky because they've been through a terrible experience, you know, you know but they're lucky they've had supportive parents, and they've those parents are told, no, you actually do hate your child. It's dumb. Mm. And then in the other corner, you have people like Mark Latham who are dumb. Mm. And the conversation on all topics is taken up by stupid people. And this is where commercial media and independent media online as well, this is where they're meant, or this is where real journalists are meant to report the facts without bias. And they're meant to hold people to a form of logic. But the idea of false balance in the media has now come to not just different interpretations of events. It's come to different facts. Yeah. Whatever you want without question. And we just have madness. Vanaxis, thank you very much for your time. Uh, it was a pleasure. And I watch it on stream TV. It's better than torrents and you can get past it with a VPN. You don't need to worry about metadata. Just a little hint there for my fellow thieves. Most of you don't care about metadata. Obviously, I need to be really careful. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm a dog. That's me fucking acting, you mutt. Go to fucking bed now. No. I don't know if anyone else has noticed any women out there, but uh, every time I go to a public toilet or a toilet in a pub or a toilet in a, a club. The female toilets are always disgusting. So I've heard. Often more disgusting than the men's toilets. I mean, you know, we as women walk around and we, you know, wax our vaginas to hide the hair away. We shave our legs, hide them away, shave under our arms, dye our hair, get rid of our moustache. But we go in the toilet and we piss all over the seat and that's okay. It's disgusting. Women are disgusting in private. It, you know, and a girl will walk out of the toilet and a man will think, Jesus, she looks beautiful, she's lovely. Little do you know, she's probably just pulled her undies to the side, pissed all over the seat, drip dried, and she's out. That's and because disgusting. that bloke is so drunk, he'll go down on her later that night, he'll fuck her, and she'll be covered in piss. This is really gross. It's gross, isn't it? But mind you, I've been into a gay club where I've walked into the female oh. toilet and there's been a bloke giving another bloke a blowjob and the whole place is covered in piss. So, I mean, maybe we're even. I mean, here's the thing. There are a lot of disgusting public toilets out there. None of them are as disgusting as the toilets in Ark. The worst place I've ever been in my life. <laughs> In my life. Ark, I refuse to go there just because of the toilet. Ark was fine when I was 23, off my face, and upstairs surrounded by lasers on a dance floor. The second you step into the toilets, you've stepped into Narnia after it's been burnt to the ground. Oh, and then raped as well. And infested with With leeches. shit and piss. And there's probably moths there as well. Let's be oh, serious. Large oversized moths. You know... Um, I remember back in high school they had on the bookshelves, and this is at a Catholic boys' high school, they had on a bookshelf a book, book of Nostradamus's prophecies. And one of them was that the end of the world was going to be the air becoming thick with bird-sized moths. <laughs> yeah. That was the end of the world. And I tell you what, 
It started in ARC. It's ARC toilets. Was- and I think even if I was dead and taken there, I'd find a way to resurrect and leave because it's terrible. And that's why there's so many walking dead pouring out of ARC. Oh. They're trying to get away from the moth hatching event. Yeah. I feel like, I mean, do they just spray it down of an evening? Do they just get an industrial hose and just... Because it really hasn't made a difference. I think whatever they used to clean up after Chernobyl or Hiroshima <laughs> probably wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't be enough. The whole no. place just needs to be burnt to the ground and everyone needs to die. I think the only solution to the toilets in Ark is to nuke Sydney. Absolutely. I mean, we've gone down the toilet with the lockout laws. We may as well just finish the job. Just finish it off. Every, the whole place is dead anyway. It doesn't matter. Turning to something more recent, Magritte's mm. Mm. Uh, This Is Not A Pipe. Yeah, unlike <laughs> unlike some of the other artists around at the time, um, Magritte did uh, produce a lot of the work with his own hand. So mm. all of those paintings that you're sort of familiar with, with, you know, the guy in the bowler hat with the apple in front of his face. To me, they just look so super French. It's like a really French level of, of like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you Viewers, you can't see it, but I hope you can hear it. But I, I did just do a very Gallic shrug. <laughs> I, I think... Marguerite's work is the equivalent of a Gallic truck. <laughs> yes. This is not a pipe for the listener who hasn't seen it. It's essentially a drawing of... Hey, like a men's sort of smoking, smoking pipe. pipe. With the text underneath it. Yes. Very this carefully handwritten carefully in French. This is not a pipe. Yes. Now, I was reading an essay by Michel Foucault <laughs> of this <laughs> which titled... Is, which is also a Gallic French Shrug of a name. Yeah. <laughs> And and Foucault wrote of you know in, in this sort of this huge exposition mm. about this painting that writing underneath it this is not a pipe and the image is clearly a pipe yes. creates this sort of circular logic mm. is the text not the pipe is yes. the pipe not yes. the pipe yeah. can a te- can a drawing of a pipe ever be a pipe yeah etc etc I think the this is not a pipe thing I'm going to tie it back to a art theoretical kind of strand of thought and I'm going to tie it back to Picasso because in sort of very quick succession, so many of those very important art movements of the early 20th century really did stem from sort of Picasso's experimentations. And towards the end of Picasso's sort of cubist experimentations where he started to move more into sort of collage and 3D works, he started to produce works which draw your inte- your attention to the materiality of the work. They're drawing your attention to the fact that you're looking at a representation, you're not looking at the thing itself. So there's one very famous one, um, which is like a picture. It's like called a still life because they're all called still lifes at that point. And it's sort of like an ovular, sort of like tondo format. And then there's a bit of chair caning in there. And then I think the edge is rope. And so it very much draws your attention to the fact that it's not meant to be like a window on the outside world or something or like a hyper-realistic portrait. You're looking at a a crafted object. And so that reminds me of a concept in art history and theory called ontology, which is, Mm. yeah. The nature of being. Well, the nature of thingness mm. as well. So, I mean, we've been challenged a number of times in education theory to mm. make the ontological term, which makes me furious because I think but it's I ridiculous. But I don't think it applies in education. What's well, a lot of scholars are sort of picking up um, uh, Guy Deleuze and, and Felix Guattari's stuff. 
capitalism and schizophrenia and rhizomatic this and that. I should mention that on our way into the library, we did hear a socialist talk about the tool that the ruling classes use to... (laughs) Sorry? I appear to have nodded off there. Yeah, I I don't know... I don't know how much place that really has in the real classroom, you know. So, and this is the thing, abstract theorising is a wonderful thing. Run away with it, have fun with it, but... You know, but your kids I mean, need I'm, to learn to household budget, for Christ's sake. And I'm coming at education for research with a really practical thing. Yeah. And yeah. I don't think the ontological turn in that field is relevant, but in I art. it's helpful. Yeah, so the way it applies in art is that you sort of consider whether the object you're looking at is a type or a token. Mm. So whether, uh, whether you're looking at a sort of unique, discrete sort of object or whether you're looking at one of a series or one of a copy. And it's very interesting when it applies to something like Warhol, where there is no original. So you have no type, you only have tokens. So then does each one become an individual object itself, or are they all viewed as, you know, layers of the same kind of thing, which I think is fascinating. Um, And Warhol by no means raised those questions intentionally in his work. He just was a big fame whore. But Magritte, to, t- to return to the pipe, like it's a very, very simple work. I can't remember if it's a drawing or a painting, but I feel like it might even be a, a drawing. By doing the this is not a pipe, again, he, he sort of brings your attention to the fact that it's a representation that does incorporate that text element. So representation of the thing is not the thing itself. Yeah. So I think he is denoting his work as tokens, not as types. Presaging the obsession with the meta that's sort of taken off these days. Yeah, and so interestingly, sort of following Magritte, we're sort of circling back to some of the artists that I've spoken about in the past. You have then people like Duchamp who don't even produce the work, but then are drawing your attention to that sort of objectness of the work. But Magritte, I think, the only reason I can take that sort of like very low level kind of philosophical questioning is that they're kind of the first to do it. Mm. And, and this is this is something that I sort of return to in art history when, when people sort of think, oh, well, why can you res- respect Malevich's black square or whatever or eve klein blues like blue fucking canvas but i wouldn't i wouldn't respect an artist who who does that now it's because when it's the first time that that has been done in sort of the history of art then i think it is a valid statement so you know renee magritte's this is not a pipe that that's pretty sort of in and of itself as a statement it's not super complex you can build a lot of complexity out of it, but I think it is acceptable at that point in art history because then when artists, like where artists go after that, it just broadens it so far and you couldn't have had it without that sort of pivotal moment of text and representation in that sort of loop together. Got into a bit of an existential crisis there. Yeah, we did actually. Uh, Dr. Georgina McNeil, thank you for taking us down this circular ontological crisis. I think just... I sort of took the listener onto a bit of a like Mobius strip kind of argument. <laughs> Don't know where it starts and finishes. I hope you enjoy. There is no start or finish. We are victims of an Escher painting. Oh my God. <laughs> no, let's go outside and join that Nuss rally. Oh, for fuck's sake. Yeah. I hope you've had a pleasant evening listening to Humidum or perhaps during the day if that's when you digest your podcasts. Rest easy as it goes down. It can sometimes cause indigestion and heartburn. Flesh-eating zombies. Oh, my Disgusting man! Demonic hell beasts. never-ending. It's just like the whole Gina's hole.